Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode five of the Bad Philosopher podcast. I'm your host, Dan Levesque, and today we're going to be going into part three of our discussion about existential risks. Particularly today, we're going to be running over a few very hypothetical existential risks that could threaten humanity in the future, and then we'll also be talking about the rare earth hypothesis and examining our place in the universe. Now, to kick things off, I'd say we just jump straight into examining what these hypothetical risks are and discussing some of the implications here. And keep in mind that some of the things we're going to be covering here are going to sound a lot like they belong to the realm of science fiction. And that's kind of because they do. I mean, a lot of good science fiction takes real-life scientific theories or hypotheses and deploys them in a fictionalized universe or world to tell a story. And a lot of these hypothetical risks are just that. They're hypotheses. We don't know if they're going to come to fruition or if they're even possible, but from a theoretical standpoint, they might be. So first on my list of hypotheticals is the possibility that we run into some sort of advanced alien civilization out in the cosmos or in our galaxy somewhere. And with this risk, it it could be that aliens do invade us or want to take over Earth or otherwise just exterminate us to get us out of the way. An important observation here that harkens back to human history in general is that whenever a more developed or complex civilization has encountered a less developed civilization, it never goes well for that less developed civilization. And this could be bad news for us, considering that an alien civilization could potentially be thousands or millions of years more advanced than us, having technology at their fingertips that we might not even be able to comprehend. So to be real here, the existence of an advanced alien civilization is a total unknown at this point. And with this alien issue, we might ask ourselves too, I mean, what would motivate some advanced alien civilization with this hyper-advanced technology that we can't even comprehend, what would motivate them to want to exterminate us? Well, it could be a self-preservation thing. I mean, if they're already colonizing the galaxy, they might not want a competitor civilization to come along and try to do the same thing or compete with them for resources. At worst, they might look at us the same way we look at an anthill or any sort of natural habitat when we want to build a housing development somewhere, for example. Typically, we just bulldoze over whatever is in our way because we think our developments are more important than the ecosystem that existed there before us. We could add to this, though, that as we've become more responsible stewards of this land, we've become more adept at conducting ecological assessments and mitigating the impacts of these activities. So that could be in our favor. If an alien civilization has similar protocols or even cares in place, they they might care about preserving rather than exterminating other intelligent life in the universe then maybe we don't have to worry about that. Maybe intelligent life is a novelty to them the way other species of animals on this earth are a novelty to us. But there are other ways an alien civilization could impact us apart from just a straight-up extermination. They could initiate some sort of a preserve, or like a cosmic nature preserve, that treats us sort of like animals in a zoo, or prevents us from expanding further, sort of wants to contain us in this natural habitat called Earth that we've come up and evolved on. We could even become objects of scientific observation from a distance in the same way that we observe and study wildlife in its natural environment. And as far as we know, this could have already happened. We could have probes or other advanced observers hidden somewhere in our solar system or even on our planet that keeps tabs on us for this hyper-advanced civilization that's out there. And if ever there comes a point where we try to expand any further than our own planet or our own solar system, that's where we might become forcefully halted, sort of gated in by these extraterrestrial gatekeepers. I mean, an analogy here could be imagining if chimpanzees started building cities and competing for resources with us, and then what if that chimpanzee civilization wanted to expand and spread to every continent on Earth and start establishing settlements there too? I mean, would we try to stop them? We don't exactly want chimpanzees to evolve and develop a complex society. Instead, we've kept them in captivity or kept them in nature preserves. We really just want them to remain as is for as long as possible while we utilize Earth's resources for ourselves. 
I don't know that we ourselves would tolerate a competitor civilization in this regard, and an alien civilization might see the galaxy similarly. They might see it as theirs. They might see us as a novel species worthy of preserving the way we preserve chimpanzees and great apes and all sorts of other animals, but not as a species that they would want to allow to develop and continue expanding into their sort of territory. The other extraterrestrial problem we could run into, if there's ever a contact scenario, is that of alien microbes. I mean, who knows what an older and more expansive cosmic civilization might have in terms of viruses that could infect and swiftly kill us. Again, just think of Europeans making contact with indigenous peoples in the Americas and elsewhere in the world. It did not go well for those indigenous, smaller indigenous populations largely because of the pathogens of the old world that were completely novel to those populations. And we can parse this out mathematically as well. The population of the old world, so Africa, Asia, and Europe, was a lot larger and more expansive than the population of the Americas and some of these other small islands and whatnot. So that bigger population would have encountered more viruses. Viruses would have spread more prolifically through more people. Those viruses would have had more chances to mutate. So after some hundreds or thousands of years of one human population in the Americas or other isolated islands being separated off from the bulk of the population of humanity, well, that smaller population never got to develop the natural immunity to those more prolific viruses that the old world was used to. So when Europeans began expanding to these islands and to the Americas and they made contact with these peoples that have never experienced these particular pathogens before, they had no natural immunity and that decimated their population. So just imagine what a cosmic civilization with hundreds of billions or even trillions of individuals in it could have in terms of microbes. And maybe this civilization is even thousands or millions or more years older than ours. That means they could have viruses that are significantly more complex or pathogenic. And if they're these off-world alien microbes, I mean, who knows what they could do to us? How would our immune system cope with these viruses or these microbes? There are a lot of unknowns here. We don't know if the way that pathogens have evolved on Earth is common on other life-bearing worlds or not. They could be similar enough that they become extremely deadly to us because we have absolutely no defenses and these pathogens could be more advanced through greater evolutionary pressures. Or they could be so radically different from viruses as we know them today that they can't even use us as hosts within which to replicate, so this could be a saving grace in this kind of a scenario. But maybe the absolute worst scenario for us when it comes to the existence of some advanced extraterrestrials somewhere in the galaxy would be the rise of a dominant and violent alien civilization. We could make an argument here that any hypothetical alien civilization is more likely to be peaceful and benevolent since it does take a lot of cooperation to run society and a mega-civilization would be no different. Over time, Earth has become a more peaceful place overall, as us humans, we've developed into more sophisticated societies and we've integrated more with one another and with other nations. If such a trend holds, then we might expect that an advanced alien species would be benevolent, zen-like gods that care about the well-being of all beings that they encounter. Unfortunately, this just might not offer much condolence here. I mean, all it would take in this context is one super-violent alien civilization to emerge. I mean, think of an alien version of a Hitler. And once they had established technological dominance, they could conquer any other alien civilizations that they encountered. Once a civilization like this took over, then it would become impossible for any developing civilizations like ours to reach maturity. It could even be the case that once such a bad actor had achieved supremacy and eradicated their foes, the galaxy would then go dark. Any peaceful civilizations out there would either perish or be forced to conceal their existence and hide from this violent civilization. In which case, the only thing we would ever observe here from Earth was that the galaxy itself is eerily silent and seemingly devoid of life. On a related note, the next hypothetical risk I want to discuss is the possibility of interstellar self-replicating machines, or probes. 
So in the last episode, in part two of this series, we talked about self-replicating nanobots that are microscopic and can build perfect replicas of themselves at the molecular level. Such technology doesn't exist yet, but it's definitely a potential technology that could exist in the future. And this could present an existential risk to humanity, because with such a technology, Earth might get engulfed in this gray goo scenario that turns all available matter into these nanobots that endlessly self-replicate themselves. A similar scenario that could play out, but on a cosmic level, would be if instead of Earth-based nanobots that self-replicate themselves, we had space-based probes capable of a similar feat. Using available resources in space, such as asteroids and maybe even planets, mining them and then turning the raw materials into replicas of themselves. This would be a self-replicating space probe. And because of the abundance of resources available in space, including everything they would need to construct and fuel such a probe, developing this kind of technology would be the holy grail for any spacefaring civilization. And such a feat might actually be easier than developing nanobots, because you wouldn't have to worry about precision at a molecular scale. Instead, the self-replicating probe would just have to create a copy of itself that's good enough that could then go on to create further replicas. Just imagine, in our future, a scenario where we send a probe to explore the outer solar system, and that probe is so advanced that it's able to latch onto asteroids or comets and gather raw materials from them and turn those raw materials into more probes, like itself. This type of thing would significantly speed up our ability to explore and eventually colonize other worlds. Instead of launching every probe from Earth, we would just need to send out one super-competent probe, and that probe would then create everything it needs on location. There are a couple of different ways this kind of technology could play out. First would be for use in space exploration. As I mentioned, instead of building and sending a probe to every star in the galaxy, we would just send out an initial convoy of a probe or two to some nearby stars. And once there, they would just use the resources at hand to build copies of themselves, and then send those probes onto the nearest stars, and so on. Playing this leapfrog game, we would end up having probes in every star system in our galaxy way faster than if we built them all on Earth and launched them from here. So if it is the case that any advanced alien civilizations have existed before, it would make sense to expect to find such self-replicating exploration probes scattered throughout the galaxy. We could even expect to find one in our own solar system, since after the initial design and deployment, all further probes are basically being constructed for free. There's little investment here after the initial launch. Another way this could be useful technology would be for colonization rather than just exploration. Maybe a phase two would be to build a probe capable of constructing a colony on another world, and once that's done, the probe builds more probes of the same type and then sends those out too. So again, rather than sending a convoy from one central planet to all of the other nearby planets, you just continue to leapfrog and build as you go along. The first part of this would be constructing the initial manufacturing probes, and with a critical mass, they could potentially build everything else and keep building more of themselves as well. And this would lead to exponential growth. Say it takes 50 years for 10 manufacturing probes to build up a colony and build 10 more manufacturing probes. Well, once all of those are sent out, it would only take another 50 years to build 100 colonies plus 10 more manufacturing probes per colony. And from there, another 50 years to build a thousand more colonies, and so on and so on. It multiplies by 10x every single time there's a new generation being built. So the interesting feature with these self-replicators is that they sort of behave like viruses, or like self-replicating nanobots. Each subsequent replication is an exponential explosion in population, and with space-based self-replicators it wouldn't take many generations before the entire galaxy had been colonized in this way. But the real risk here in terms of an existential risk for humanity would be the potential worst thing we could encounter, which would be hostile self-replicating probes or machines. There's some decent science fiction tales out there about scenarios where machines like this exist, and they've sometimes been referred to as berserkers. And the idea here is that at some point, an advanced alien civilization would have created these self-replicating berserker probes, sort of like attack probes, 
to seek out and eradicate, or maybe just defend against, any other intelligent life in the galaxy. With this exponential rate of self-replicating being a real issue with this technology, the rise of such machines could become an arms race worse than our modern nuclear arms race. Whoever achieved the biggest stockpile of such probes, and we could be talking numbers in the billions or even trillions of such machines, they would have a huge advantage here. They might even be incentivized to conduct a first strike before any other civilization is able to amass and use this kind of technology against them. An even scarier prospect here is if these self-replicating berserkers were to become unleashed or fall under the control of a hostile artificial intelligence. Imagine a civilization that creates such probes to use defensively, but eventually the probes turn on their creators, either through a coding mistake, like seek and destroy an intelligent civilization and they say, oh, here's one, it's you. Or through some kind of hostile takeover through a a bad actor like an artificial intelligence. The result would be a galaxy and maybe even a universe full of these killer self-replicating probes who, whenever they detect signs of intelligent life emerging, swarm on that location, multiply themselves, and swiftly destroy these intruders. And if this hypothetical was a reality, then we might expect that some of these probes are on their way to Earth right now. Space is very big after all, and even if they had detected us as intelligent life some decades ago, it might still take them a lot of time to get here and to build a force large enough to deliver a killing blow to life on Earth. This might also explain why the universe itself seems empty. It could actually be full of these killer probes that we can't detect, who then become activated when they detect an intelligent species like us. So here we have two exotic risks to consider when it comes to a hypothetical advanced alien civilization. Firstly, that we might be threatened by advanced aliens themselves. And secondly, that we might be threatened by advanced hostile probes that seek and destroy intelligent life as it emerges. And what could make this situation even more dire for us? Well, the simulation hypothesis, of course. So this is the idea that the universe could be running inside of a computer simulation, and this could represent an existential risk not just to humanity, but to our entire universe as a whole. This would mean that at any point, the simulation could be ended or terminated or deleted, or just restructured in such a way that erases our existence. Say they want to restore a backup from a few decades in the past and they erase all a recent history of humanity so that they could replay what happened before, but maybe in a different way. And with this scenario, we're not so much talking about a Matrix-like scenario where we have real physical bodies and we're just plugged into a simulated virtual world. While that is possible, it might be more likely that we, that our minds, are entirely composed of computer code and that we have no real physical existence outside of this computer simulation. A few questions we might ask here would be along the lines of, why run such a simulation, and for what purpose? It's worthwhile to keep in mind here that we ourselves are already running simulations like this, just... They're not as sophisticated as a life-like total world simulation that we might find ourselves living in now. But we do run simulations to simulate physical and biological processes. We even run brain emulations where we simulate real brains inside of a computer. And maybe the most prolific form of simulated worlds we have is that of video games, where we build simulated worlds filled with virtual characters and a rich history and story. Just look at how much more sophisticated video games have become over the past few decades and we can see a trend here. If this keeps going the way it's going, it won't be long until these simulated gaming worlds are just as real as the reality we live our daily lives in. If we ever get to the point of being able to run such complex simulations where virtual people we're creating think that they themselves are real and have actual conscious experiences like our own, then it would beg the question as to whether or not we ourselves could also just be virtual people living in a similar virtual world. Apart from video games, another potential reason for running such simulations would be to simulate history. We might call this an ancestor simulation. The idea here is that you would create a lifelike simulated world and pre-populate it with historical events and figures. 
And from there, you'd run a simulation of how that world develops over time and see how it matches up to our understanding of history. And this would represent a brand new, innovative way of studying history. Rather than just hypothesizing and figuring out events from the historical record, you could actually seek to simulate historical events with high precision using simulated people. And maybe this is where we find ourselves today. I mean, maybe our descendants thousands of years in the future are running these ancestor simulations now to try to figure us out, or just for the sake of their own entertainment. And if that's the case, who's to say that our simulators themselves aren't also living in a simulation? Maybe maybe when we tally up the total number of universes that exist out there, the vast majority of them are actually simulated universes running inside of a computer simulation. What you have here is simulations all the way down, like one of those Russian nesting dolls. Through the lens of existential risk here, the greatest risk we might experience is of the simulation being shut down. And this could happen for a variety of reasons. Maybe if our simulated world ends up being full of human suffering and little good or happiness. Maybe our simulators have some ethical concerns around simulating unhappy virtual people and would prefer to run simulations where there's less suffering and more good. Maybe that's even the purpose of running such simulations, trying to figure out how to maximize happiness in their own reality by simulating alternative realities and tallying up the total amount of happiness versus suffering. Or maybe our simulation could be ended by virtue of it not being interesting enough. I don't recall where this idea came from, but I've heard it multiple times. It's been said that If we do live in such a simulated reality, then our best bet for survival and continued existence might be to make our particular simulation as entertaining as possible to our simulators. Basically, please the masters so that we get to continue playing this game of existence. So similar to the alien scenario and the hostile berserker probe scenario, this simulation hypothesis is both dreadful and extremely hypothetical. And they all depend on some other bad actors of a sort existing. Either a hostile alien civilization, or hostile alien machines or artificial intelligence, or some kind of a simulator. But now I'd like to look at some other hypothetical risks that have to do with some unknowns that are built into the fabric of the cosmos in the form of what we might call the laws of physics. The next risk I want to look at is the risk of physics experiments gone awry. Probably the example that's gotten the most attention has been the hypothetical risk of a particle accelerator experiment, such as what they're doing at CERN with the Large Hadron Collider. One of the scenarios here is that such a powerful particle accelerator smashing elementary particles into one another could create these microscopic black holes. And such a thing, if it persists, could then sink into the center of the Earth, devouring the Earth's core and all matter around it, until the entire Earth eventually falls into what was initially a microscopic black hole, but ends up being the entire Earth consumed and turned into the form of a tiny black hole. But physicists have suggested that if such a thing were theoretically possible, it would have happened already in the form of cosmic rays striking the Earth's atmosphere with similar energy levels as we see in the Large Hadron Collider all the time. And also that if such a microscopic black hole ever did form out of one of these collisions, it would instantly decay because it wouldn't be stable at such a low mass. Another related scenario with the Large Hadron Collider is that it could create a form of strange matter called a strangelet. And this is a hypothetical particle that could have a totally different configuration of matter than what the regular matter we interact with every day has. It's hypothesized that if such a form of matter could exist, it could potentially convert any other matter it comes into contact with into strange matter as well. Along with this particle collider hypothesis, it's also said that strange matter like this could form naturally on its own, and that there could be globs of it hurtling around the universe. Hypothetically, a meteor-sized bundle of strange matter colliding with a planet-sized object could travel straight through it, leaving an exit crater on the other side. But both of these things are extremely hypothetical. There's still a lot of debate on this strangelet topic and on the microscopic black hole topic. Ultimately, both seem extremely unlikely, but they are possible. And I think with these, it comes down to what level of risk we're willing to accept when running experiments like this. 
Even an extremely minuscule amount of added risk might be considered to be too much when we're talking about the possible end of humanity and civilization on this planet as we know it. The next physics-related hypothetical risk is one that I barely understand, but it's the possibility that our universe might be existing in a false vacuum state, and that it might rupture in some meta-instability event where all of the matter in the universe transitions into a brand new form of matter that is more stable. This one is in a category of its own in terms of risk because it would most likely occur as a side effect of the continued expansion of the universe rather than as something triggered by an experiment we're running in a particle collider. But this, ultimately, it's a hypothetical event where the expanding cosmos creates an unstable vacuum. And this could result in a phase transition where the existing matter in the universe is wiped out and destroyed and gets converted into a new form of matter. And this could all happen almost instantaneously from our point of view because it wouldn't happen at the speed of light. So to give an analogy here, a similar phase transition happens with other forms of matter. For example, when an object turns from a liquid to a solid, that is a phase transition. Or an analogy I've heard of is if you think of water that's able to cool very slowly to a sub-freezing temperature, but because the change is very gradual and the water remains undisturbed, it can retain its liquid form even when it's well below freezing. But then the second that water is disturbed or jostled, all of the water instantly transforms into ice. That is a rapid phase transition. And I think this is a good analogy for what might happen if our universe's vacuum reaches a point of instability and or something triggers such a phase transition to occur. If this kind of thing were to happen, we would not know it. We wouldn't know it was happening, we wouldn't see it coming. The phase transition itself would happen at the speed of light. At one moment, we'd be living our everyday normal matter lives, and then suddenly, all of the matter in the universe would be changed into a new form. Life as we know it would become impossible. It would be a total restart, sort of like starting from scratch with the new Big Bang. And this is yet another hypothetical physics puzzle that's still being debated. And this stems from the idea of metastability, that our universe's current vacuum state is stable at this juncture, but it'll eventually reach a point where there's a more stable state that might exist out there. In this kind of scenario, the universe wouldn't immediately transition to this more stable state. It might be more like that super cool glass of water where it requires some sort of phenomenon to happen that would trigger the transition. The next on my hypothetical list of physics risks is the possibility of some undiscovered physics or even an evolving physics over time. And this might be a scenario where the laws of physics themselves aren't fixed states of the universe, but rather they're things that change over time. And one thing I've also thought about often is the idea of these laws of physics. People talk about them as if they're some hard-coded laws of the universe that physics is required to follow. But in reality, these laws of physics aren't hard-coded into the universe, they're just our interpretation of the observations we're making about the universe as a whole. And it could be that over time, our observations of the universe point to different laws of physics. The laws of physics as we know them could change over time, albeit extremely slowly. Maybe some of the fundamental forces become stronger or weaker over time. For example, there's the discovery that the rate of expansion of the universe has been accelerating, which sort of goes against the standard model of the Big Bang. Well, one possible explanation here could be that if one of the fundamental forces like gravity progressively weakens by a minuscule amount over time, if this is the case, then there would be less gravitation holding galaxies together over time, and so we would expect to see this manifested in the form of some expansion, some speeding up of expansion, because there's less gravity to hold the universe together, because gravity as a fundamental force of physics has weakened over time. And further on this note, the laws of physics could also be different throughout the universe rather than uniform rules. And there is a possibility of an existential risk scenario over a very long time scale, where matter and the fundamental forces that govern matter could begin to behave slightly differently as time goes on. Those forces could either become stronger or they could become weaker. And it does appear that, from our point of view, the universe is sort of fine-tuned for life in the present moment. 
But what if this expression of physics changes over time, and this slow evolution of the laws of physics eventually make the universe inhospitable to life? Because the fabric that makes life possible breaks apart or morphs into something else. This could feasibly explain the emergence of complex life on Earth. Maybe part of the reason it took so long for big-brained creatures like us to emerge was that it required the laws of physics expressing themselves in a specific configuration to enable creatures like us to exist. The implication here could be that intelligent life may have only recently become possible in the, in the universe, or just in our region of the universe, and one day in the future intelligent life could become more or less likely to exist based on how these laws of physics evolve over time if they do. In a similar vein to this, and the final hypothetical existential risk I want to discuss, is simply the risk of the unknown. We do have the possibility that there might exist some undiscovered physics out there that poses a threat to us that we don't yet know about. For example, with all of these physics problems we just talked about, with the vacuum instability, the micro black holes, and this strange matter, these have all come about within the past few decades, and they're still new to us and very hypothetical. They're things that we didn't know about before. And at this rate, we could still come up with other physics theories that could pose a threat to our species or to the entire stability of the universe, theories that we've yet to discover. Similar to how our understanding of physics is radically different today than it was a century ago, so too is our understanding of technology and of the fabric of reality itself. Telling someone a century ago about the possibility of our universe existing inside of a computer simulation would have been nonsense. They didn't have the conceptual framework to grasp such a proposition, and nobody would have that framework for at least another half century. The same problem is true of these, the concept of these self-replicating machines or probes, or of these hypothetical physics problems, or the idea behind bioengineered pandemics, or nuclear weapons, or nanotechnology. Even the threat of asteroid impacts was totally unrecognized a century ago. We were oblivious to this as a potential risk. And oh how much simpler life was back when we were oblivious to such horrific things. Well, what if we have a similar issue now where we can't even imagine the technologies that could exist a century from now? What if we invent something or discover something that changes the game in terms of existential risk? As philosopher Toby Ord writes in his book The Precipice, and I quote, Imagine if the scientific establishment of 1930 had been tasked to compile a list of the existential risks humanity would face over the following hundred years. They would have missed most of the risks we've covered, especially the anthropogenic risks. Some would have been on the edge of their awareness, while others would have come as complete shocks. How much risk lies beyond the limits of our own vision? So, a hundred years ago, the biggest existential risk would have been other human beings. Also, humans wouldn't necessarily have thought of themselves as just one global civilization with a shared identity. This is something that's emerged relatively recently through globalization. The idea of humanity going extinct was probably just a fable, reserved for religious doctrines talking about the end of times and the apocalypse. So, all of that about covers the baseline of our hypothetical existential risks. We've covered risks from aliens or hostile machines, and the risks that we might possibly be living in a computer simulation that could be terminated at any time. And then we have hypothetical risks from physics, whether it be our own experiments or some catastrophic or unknown cosmic event that's going to happen sometime in the future. The good thing with these is that most of these hypothetical risks can be investigated over time and hopefully clarified. Some will be minimized. As we develop better technology, we'll be able to hone in on the chances of aliens or hostile machines awaiting to greet us in a friendly or not-so-friendly manner. We might be able to develop some sort of framework to help us investigate whether or not we're actually living inside of a computer simulation, though this might ultimately be impossible to determine from within such a system. And these hypothetical physics questions can one day be answered, and surely we'll uncover even more questions and potential risks as we learn more. 
When we study existential risks, we can also deploy a sort of cosmic perspective as a thought experiment to help us think about and understand the totality of the risks that we face. One way to do this is to consider the possibility of there having been other intelligent and advanced civilizations that arrived before us in the universe, whether they arose and colonized the stars, or whether they got to the point we did and then imploded from some catastrophic scenario like the ones we've covered throughout this podcast series. Or, maybe no other civilization in the entire universe has ever reached the level of sophistication that our civilization has today. Maybe we're the first arrival of an intelligent technological species ever. That would certainly match our observations thus far, though our observations admittedly have not been extremely extensive. But the silence of the cosmos in terms of our having not found any evidence of aliens is a profound problem. It's a famous problem, and it's even got a name. We call it the Fermi Paradox. And the Fermi Paradox is this. If it is indeed common for life to arise in the universe and, given enough time, to develop into an intelligent technological species such as our own, then we would expect other alien civilizations to exist out there. Particularly given the fact that the universe is some 14 billion years old and life on Earth has developed to where it is today in just 4.5 billion of those years. We know older stars and older planets do exist, so if life is common, we might expect other technological civilizations to have arisen before us. Also, from where we are now, we would expect that we'll be able to colonize a good chunk of our local galaxy over the coming few thousand years, assuming we don't go extinct. All tallied up, the implication here is that if other intelligent aliens do exist and they've developed technology that enables expansion throughout the galaxy, then we would expect to see some evidence of them. And I'm not talking about little green men zipping around in flying saucers, I'm talking galactic-scale spacefaring civilizations that may be thousands or millions of years more advanced than we are, at least. The classic example of this would be detecting a signal of some kind, maybe radio waves or something of obvious artificial origin out in space. We've been listening for a while and we haven't detected anything yet. Some take this as evidence that there aren't any aliens out there to find. It could just be that we haven't found them yet or that they haven't sent a message. I mean, why would they? We don't send messages to the chimpanzees and they don't seem particularly keen on sending messages to us. We just kind of stare at each other through the bushes before going about our daily lives. Now, we could get into a debate here about alien languages and the possibility of cross-species communication at all, but maybe we'll save this for another episode on another day. The reality here is that we've monitored a stunningly small portion of the surrounding cosmos for signals from any type of advanced civilization. And there are reasons to think that this is futile, since radio waves sent into space disperse over time, and if you try to send a focused beam so that it travels longer distances, it's only good for a very small area at once. So a more fruitful way to look for our little green men would be to look for passive technosignatures on other planets. For example, by taking pictures of and conducting a spectral analysis of the atmospheres of exoplanets tens or hundreds of light years from Earth, and by observing other star systems for evidence of any sort of megastructures. An example of this would be a Dyson swarm where millions or billions of artificial habitats or satellites, sort of like gigantic space stations, orbit their host star. With enough of these structures passing in front of any given star, we should be able to detect a slight intermittent dimming as a result of these transits. Or on an even grander scale, maybe even the construction of a Dyson sphere where a star over time is completely enclosed in a sphere so that 100% of its sunlight can be captured and converted into energy for this advanced civilization. We've really only begun these searches now. I'm, we're on the cusp of being able to analyze exoplanet atmospheres. We do have some very large telescopes coming online in the coming years that should be capable of taking images of exoplanet atmospheres that are many, many light years away from us. 
And so far, our survey of surrounding stars in our neighborhood has found some interesting phenomena, but nothing that can definitively be pegged to any kind of artificial origin. Given enough time looking, it is possible that we do eventually find some form of technosignature. And this could come from civilizations that are in a similar technological era as we are, or they could be significantly more advanced. Or we could even see the start of some industrial revolution on some distant planet with increasing levels of heavier elements from coal burning, for example. It's also possible that we don't find any of these things, or that when looking at planets located outside of our solar system, we find other signatures instead. The first and maybe the most common type of signature we might expect to find would be a straight-up biosignature. And this would be evidence in the form of an analysis of a planet's atmosphere that there could be life, there could be functioning biology. For example, we might see oxygen in the atmosphere being produced, or we might even be able to detect the greenness of the planet and deduce that it's covered in green vegetation. And these planets would also be prime targets to analyze for any evidence of a technosignature as well, perhaps even looking for artificial lights on the dark side of the planet. The other type of signature we might find could be a necrosignature. For example, we could detect large amounts of artificial radioactive material in the atmosphere of an exoplanet, and this could indicate to us that a nuclear war had taken place. Or we could spot an atmosphere that suffered a runaway greenhouse effect through artificial emissions, like with carbon dioxide or methane from burning coal or fossil fuels. These are all fields of astronomy that are in their extremely early stages, but exploring these avenues will help us over the coming decades to figure out some of these critical questions about the origins of life in the universe. The fundamental question we all have, are we alone? Are we an outlier that came into existence through a series of chance events? Or are there other advanced civilizations out there that are like us, or that may have come before us? We can guess, but until we find any evidence of biosignatures or technosignatures or necrosignatures, or a complete lack thereof, we simply don't know. And we can also conduct this search in our neighborhood within our own solar system. Life could exist on other planets, underground on Mars or in the atmosphere of Venus. Or it could exist on some of the moons of Jupiter or Saturn, like beneath the icy shells of Enceladus or Europa where liquid water is known to exist. Or it could exist on the strange methane-dominated surface of Titan. If we find life in the solar system, it could be a double-edged sword. On the one hand, it might suggest that life is common in the universe, but on the other, it would beg the question, where is everyone else? Maybe life is likely, but complex civilizations are rare, or eventually complex civilizations all go extinct. And if we definitively find no evidence of life on Mars or anywhere else we look, that could signify that we're special, that life is rare, and that what happened to start up life here on Earth is rare. The unlikely event might have been in our past, and now that we're through this bottleneck, only good things await us in the future. This is the basis of the rare earth hypothesis. This is a shot at trying to answer the Fermi paradox, and it offers us this answer, that we don't see evidence of other life in the universe because it's rare. Because along the trajectory from life's origins to the development of an advanced civilization capable of colonizing the stars, there might be some great filter that stops evolution in its tracks. The question for us as one of these technological civilizations would then be, does this great filter exist in our future, or did it exist in our past and we happened to have come out the other side already? This is a profound question, and as a thought experiment, it's key to being able to answer the question as to whether humanity will go extinct in the near future, or if we'll survive long enough to colonize other worlds and secure our long-term potential. So I'd like to take some time here to take stock of this rare earth hypothesis and sort of try to parse out where we think we might fall here. In a study published in the scientific journal Astrobiology, the researchers say that some planets in the universe might be a lot better for life than Earth is. This article goes on to say, and I quote, While the Sun is the center of our solar system, it has a relatively short lifespan of less than 10 billion years. 
Since it took nearly 4 billion years before any form of complex life emerged on Earth, many similar stars to our Sun, called G-stars, might run out of fuel before complex life can develop. In addition to looking at systems with cooler G-stars, the researchers also looked at systems with K-dwarf stars, which are somewhat cooler, less massive, and less luminous than our Sun. K-stars have the advantage of long lifespans of 20 billion to 70 billion years old, and this is 2 to 7 times greater than the total lifespan of our Sun. This would allow orbiting planets to be older as well as giving life more time to advance to the complexity currently found on Earth. However, to be habitable, planets should not be so old that they have exhausted their geothermal heat and lack protective geomagnetic fields. Earth is around 4.5 billion years old, but the researchers argue that the sweet spot for life is a planet that is between 5 to 8 billion years old. So from this, it sounds like we could sort of expect that, as time goes on, the universe might become more and more hospitable to life, particularly to complex life. And this means that if life is common, we would expect to see worlds that are even more hospitable to life and perhaps more hospitable to intelligent life in particular. And when it comes to the origins of life on Earth and how early on it might have developed, there are some theories that life could have begun extremely early on in Earth's history, maybe some 4.5 billion years ago, originating around some undersea hydrothermal vents at the bottom of the ocean. It seems to be that in Earth's history, as soon as Earth became habitable, simple forms of life began to emerge. And this might suggest that the development of simple life forms is common throughout the universe. If it arose quickly and early on in Earth's history, then maybe it would do so elsewhere as well. It could be that the jump from simple life to more complex forms of life is more difficult. As that earlier passage notes, it took about 4 billion years since Earth formed into a habitable planet for complex forms of life to begin to arise. It does seem to be the case that the emergence of more complex life might have required a period of relative climate stability. Earlier on in Earth's history, we oscillated between an extremely cold Earth that was covered in ice to an extremely warm Earth where the ocean temperatures in the tropics were 60 degrees Celsius. It was only after we left this period and started having a more regulated climate that complex life, such as animals with heads, tails, and internal organs, began to emerge. So we might have some inference as to the rarity of intelligent life here. Firstly, it seems like there are planets out there that are going to be more hospitable to life than Earth is, and as the universe ages, we could see the universe becoming more and more hospitable to life. Secondly, life might have arisen as soon as it was possible to arise on Earth. As soon as Earth becomes somewhat habitable, it seems like simple forms of life began to develop. And thirdly, despite simple life forms being around for some 4 billion years on Earth perhaps, it's a lot more difficult to develop complex life. One of the requirements to do so might be a relatively stable climate for a long duration of time. Another possible driver of evolution towards a more intelligent form of life might, ironically, be the force of mass extinctions. Since the emergence of complex life on Earth, we've had five mass extinction events where the majority of all life forms on Earth went extinct. I mean, if the mass extinction event that took out the dinosaurs hadn't have occurred, then we might not be around today to talk about it. While mass extinctions do result in biodiversity tanking over a smaller timeline, and by small here I mean a few million years, biodiversity does eventually recover. And in the takeaways from the mass extinction events, we see that in the fossil record, post-extinction, biodiversity is able to reach levels that were not previously seen. With every subsequent mass extinction, it seems that biodiversity eventually recovers and even increases. In some way, when it comes to evolution, death is what makes way for a new life to emerge. For example, the dominant species on Earth 66 million years ago was a cold-blooded lizard, the dinosaurs. I mean, could they have further evolved and eventually developed their own rocket technology and microchips? I mean, maybe they could have. But then again, maybe the only way to get to anything resembling what we have now as a human civilization would be to go through these mass extinction events. For example, this mass extinction that took out the dinosaurs that made room for a small, warm-blooded mammal to gain a foothold and to become the dominant form of land animal and eventually water animal too. 
And it seems that our mammalian cousins were able to do this because of their warm-bloodedness, allowing them to survive wild temperature fluctuations from the double whammy of a gigantic asteroid impact slamming into Earth and a volcanic winter coupled with extreme CO2 release from volcanoes. While we didn't have a stable climate at that time and Earth saw a cascading mass extinction event, this is also the period when these warm-blooded mammals were able to take hold and establish their dominance. We also need to consider the fact that warm-bloodedness requires ten times as many calories, ten times as much energy, as cold-blooded creatures do. So these mammals had to be extremely resourceful in order to survive. A tiny lizard brain wouldn't cut it here. We needed to develop bigger brains, which then required even more energy and calories. And this became a feedback loop that propelled the evolution of mammals into the complex forms we see today. Today, in every ecosystem on Earth, warm-blooded mammals are the apex predator. And humans, with our massive brain-to-body mass ratio, we're the most apex of all. So when it comes to these great filters that might exist on our path that might have prevented us from eventually developing in this, into this complex, intelligent civilization that we have today, we're not entirely sure what those filters might have been. Maybe it was the coming together of the perfect solar system, the perfect planet, with the perfect habitat for life. Maybe it was unlikely for simple life forms to have sprung up from the get-go, but luckily enough they did at an extremely early time in Earth's history. Maybe the transition from simple life forms to more complex life forms was the hardest part to overcome that's the most unlikely to overcome, but life on Earth managed to do that too. And then maybe there's a problem with stagnation, where without enough extinctions or enough mass extinction events to make room for new forms of life to evolve, maybe we would have never evolved into the complex organisms that we are today. And even there, just because we develop into intelligent, complex organisms doesn't necessarily mean that we'll develop a global, advanced technological civilization like we seem to have done. There are many other intelligent species on this planet, and none of them have developed a complex civilization or learned to use technology anywhere near to the way we're able to use it. And maybe part of this is that humans came up into some extremely rare and unlikely niche where we were able to establish a foothold and, and quickly establish dominance throughout every continent on Earth. Where we find ourselves now might be the final great filter on our road to becoming a spacefaring civilization. And that filter could be the list of existential risks that we've been discussing and going over over this three-part podcast series. And we haven't gotten past this filter yet, but rather we're right on the cusp of it. To become a truly spacefaring civilization and colonize other worlds, we maybe we need another century or two, maybe a little bit longer. And philosopher Toby Ord also thinks that the next few centuries will be the most precarious in our species' history. It's a time when our technological prowess greatly exceeds our capacity to wield this power wisely. But if we survive the coming centuries and learn to manage this technological power that we wield, then our long-term future is likely to be secured. So we do have quite the list of existential risks, and I'm just going to do a really, really quick and brief recap of the 21 existential risks we've covered over these three episodes. For natural risks, we've looked at asteroids and comets, supervolcanoes, disruptions by large cosmic objects, and supernovas and gamma-ray bursts. And then on top of that, we have the inevitable doom of increasing solar luminosity and intensity, the sun eventually turning into a red giant, and then the eventual end of the universe that we'll have to contend with. For human-caused risks, we have the threat of a nuclear apocalypse, climate change, ecological destruction, bioengineered pandemics in addition to natural ones, nanotechnology, artificial intelligence, and the possibility of a total collapse or ruining of our civilization as we know it, from which we might never recover. And for the hypothetical risks, we have the possibility of hyper-advanced aliens, hostile alien probes, our reality existing in a computer simulation, physics experiments gone bad, the decay of an unstable vacuum, evolving or changing laws of physics, and then the possibility of some big unknown something that we haven't yet discovered, 
that might also present us with new existential threats. Despite this tally, none of these risks are inevitable, apart from the inevitable end of the universe, of course. But without an extreme bout of bad luck, we can overcome almost all of them, and hopefully guide our species to safety and prosperity. It's possible that the Great Filter is behind us, that our existence in and of itself might be an extremely rare and unlikely event. As Carl Sagan says in his book Cosmos, and I quote, Were the Earth to be started over again with all its physical features identical, it is extremely unlikely that anything closely resembling a human being would ever again emerge. There is a powerful random character to the evolutionary process. A cosmic ray striking a different gene, producing a different mutation, can have small consequences early, but profound consequences late. Happenstance may play a powerful role in biology, as it does in history. The further back the critical events occur, the more powerfully they can influence the present. So here, Sagan seems to suggest that the existence of us human beings is a rarity, an unlikely event, and that if we replayed the history of Earth from the beginning, that maybe no such intelligent species as us would have emerged at all, and we don't know what else might have been different. Maybe life, or complex life as we know it, wouldn't have formed. Also, there are some questions around habitability in general. From Frank Wilkzek in the book Global Catastrophic Risks, he says, and I quote, Perhaps this simple estimate of the number of life-friendly planets is for some subtle reason wildly over-optimistic. For example, our moon plays a crucial role in stabilizing the Earth's obliquity, and thus its climate. Probably, such large moons are rare. Ours is believed to have been formed as a consequence of an unusual giant impact. And plausibly extreme, rapidly variable climate is enough to inhibit the evolution of intelligent life. Perhaps on Earth the critical symbioses and chromosome doublings were unusually lucky, and the impact extraordinarily well-timed. Perhaps, for these reasons or others, even if life of some kind is widespread, technologically capable species are extremely rare, and we happen to be the first in our neighborhood. It seems like there are a lot of great minds falling on either side of this one spectrum I want to identify. Our intuition seems to suggest that either one of the two following situations is true. Either intelligent life is extremely rare, or it's everywhere. Either we're the first intelligent technological civilization, or just one of many. If we're the first, this could give us room for optimism, the universe being wide open for us. But if we're one of many, then that begs the question, where is everyone? Have they all destroyed themselves? And does that mean we'll follow a similar path of destruction? I'd like to take a middle ground here. Maybe intelligence is extremely rare, but maybe we're not the first. Maybe we're even the first in our galaxy, but not the first intelligent civilization in the entire universe. From Toby Ord, he says, and I quote, If we are the only moral agents that will ever arise in our universe, the only beings capable of making choices on the grounds of what is right and wrong, then responsibility for the history of the universe is entirely on us. So maybe this is our cosmic destiny, to spread consciousness and reason and intellect throughout the universe, because without us it might never exist again. Then again, glancing at the internet or at TikTok might betray that idea, telling us that no such reason and intellect exist at all, even here on Earth. But by no means does that mean we should just throw our hands up in the air and give up on our future, and give up on our potential as a civilization. We could still be very early in humanity's history. Only time will tell. And our future is ultimately in our hands, if we care to grasp it. So, thank you everyone for listening. That about wraps up our three-part series on existential risk. I know it's been a long one. We're looking at somewhere in the region of three and a half plus hours of podcast material, all things considered. It is a fairly broad topic to cover, and it is something that I'm super passionate about, so I really hope I've done the topic justice. And if you do have any questions or feel like I've missed something or need clarifications, which I'm sure you do if you've listened this far, please shoot me an email. You can find my email address at our website, badphilosopher.com, 
or you could just leave a comment anywhere on our website um, under the podcast post, for example. And if you listen this far, I'd also like to give a shout out to our companion podcast. This is a weekly podcast for paying members or patrons only. It's bonus content that we release that's sort of like a sister podcast to the main Bad Philosopher podcast. On the companion podcast, we usually have some additional follow-up thoughts, some additional material or resources to reference, and it's also an opportunity for me to answer any questions or comments directly on the podcast. So again, this companion podcast is paying members only. It comes out every week, typically um, every Friday following each podcast episode release, which comes out on Wednesdays. And it is for members or patrons that are at the $5 per month tier. So it has been a lot of fun so far. The companion podcast lets me dive a little bit deeper into historical contexts and historical texts. So, so for anyone who likes to nerd out on that kind of thing, I highly recommend it and I'd be grateful for the support as well. Thank you again for everyone who's listening and who's listened thus far. That wraps up our series on existential risk, and I'll see you all on the next one.